Welcome back to a complete history of Manchester United. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, author and producer of several Manchester United books and films, and joined as always by the legendary football writer Paddy Barclay to take you on this journey through Old Trafford history. And at the moment, we're really in the glory as uh, Manchester United's Busby Babes, a bunch of bouncing Busby Babes winning everything in front of yeah. them, playing the most joyous football you've ever seen. Um, and a real joy to relive these um, times, Paddy. Um, if, you're, if you're watching this video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening back on the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe. Give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Um, last time, Paddy, we did look at the Busby Babes' first uh -huh. title winning season, 55-56, the th uh, second title of Busby. And the first major success of the Busby Babes. Um, I think maybe it might be a good place to rewind the tape a little bit to oh. the back end of the previous season because um, we've talked a lot about Duncan Edwards' seminal performances in that campaign, but we forgot, yeah. well, I forgot to put in the notes that England won in West Germany and this was the yeah. uh, birth of the moniker Boom Boom Duncan Edwards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this was West Germany were as <laughs> this more than once been the case uh, for the Germans. They were the world champions at the time. And uh, England went over there with this young Duncan Edwards. And uh, I would beseech anybody listening or watching this to um, Google Duncan Edwards' goal in Berlin because it is quite something. And it is the perfect illustration of how, of how Duncan Edwards was this combination of power, pace and technique. Um, he takes on he takes on Germany single-handedly, and uh, he, he, he beats he survives a couple of you know what other people would consider rough challenges. Uh, Duncan probably didn't even notice them, and uh, a, a shot taken so early that I think it was uh, again people looking at the at the the, the film of this will will probably say I'm employing a bit of journalistic license but i'm sure the ball's back down off the stanchion and squirming around the net while the goalie's still diving it, it was that he basically pinged it um like a balloon from uh from 20 22 yards you know and um so it's a magnificent goal and it sums up better than i could say the the the, the all-round brilliance of this young kid this is a young kid, a teenager, playing against the world champions. But anyway, watch it, trust me. Yeah. Um, and England won in, in, in Germany. And, uh, and, and Edwards was a, a star was not only in Manchester, not only in England, but, you know, across, across the world, the people took notice of Duncan yeah. Edwards from that minute. Um, English football's restoration project after the Hungary debacle well <laughs> truly concluded then uh, back to the old English way and I'm um, sure that'll be major yes. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's yeah. a, very good, a very good point uh, that although the, the footballing intelligentsia in this country had very much both press and, and you know the coaching fraternity had taken the lessons of the two victories uh, by the Hungarians to heart um, I think there was still a feeling uh, that the argument wasn't quite over yet. Yeah. Um, and in fact, this is reflected in, in developments again during the summer that followed the summer of 1956. 
in the prelude to the 56-7 season. What a fantastic season it is, and we'll now we'll go on to talk to it. But um, a letter was received um, from Sir Stanley Rouse at the FA on behalf of the international football community, offering Manchester United the opportunity that Chelsea had felt obliged to reject this a year earlier. In other words, an opportunity to enter this newfangled European Cup. And the Manchester United board, headed by Harold Hardman, were as sceptical, really, as most club boards were. Bear in mind that the Football League in England, uh, Alan Hardacre was by now the boss um, of the fully in control uh, of events at Preston uh, of the Football League. And he he believed in reducing the size. I mean, he wasn't a complete Neanderthal man, as is often painted. He wanted a smaller, i.e. 20 club, first division, or Premier League, or call it what, what you will. He wanted five leagues of 20. And he wanted to fill in the fixtures um, lost by this, uh, reduction in size of the leagues by a new thing called the Football League Cup. And he thought that would be a way of encouraging teams to play in, under floodlights in, in, in midweek. But it would be for all 100, as opposed to 92, uh, Football League clubs, rather than just the lucky one that was invited into the European Cup in this season, in this instance, Manchester United. And Manchester United board was by and large of the same view as Harold, uh, as, 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 as Harold. They thought this made sense. But Busby would not, was like a dog with a bone about European football. And so he did, what well, he, he proved himself on this occasion to be a very adept politician because he went to the Football League, first of all, to find out exactly what their problem was with the European football. And this visit to Preston confirmed him in his view that uh, that it was not wanted. And so he then went to down to London to see the FA, and in particular his old friend Sir Stanley Rouse, who was now the equivalent of Alan Hardacre at the league. Knowing that, as is, for all I know, may still be the case, that the FA notionally is the senior body, although everybody knows that the big clubs hold the strength particularly now. But in those days, the, FA, <coughs> the FA's seniority over the Football League was widely accepted. Busby went down, saw Rouse, got his facts right on that, and then said, knowing that Rouse was an internationalist, as indeed were others at the FA as opposed to the League, he said to Stanley Rouse, let me just get this absolutely straight. Is there anything in your rules, in the FA rules, that would prevent Manchester United from accepting this invitation, regardless of the Football League scepticism? And Rouse simply said, no, there is nothing in the rules to stop you. Right, said Busby. We got back on the train to Manchester and went back to the board for his second meeting with the board on this issue and said, look, I know, you know, I know your reservations about it, but we can make it work. 
we'll have to go back to Man City. Bear in mind, Manchester United don't have floodlights at this moment. Man City do. One or two other clubs do. Wolves, of course, put them in for these glamorous friendlies that we talked to in the last two episodes. And But Man United hadn't got them yet. Bear in mind that the finances of Manchester United are still affected by the war and the... Um, Plus the club was a wee bit tight with its money. But uh, they must be said, look, if we have another season in the this fantastic European Cup at Main Road, even after paying Man City rent, we will have enough to build our own floodlights in time for next season. So... The board sort of <laughs> the best way of convincing a board is by convincing that the, 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 the numbers stack up and it worked. And Busby made the point that there would be enough left over once the floodlights had been uh, erected to pay the players a, a bonus for, for Europe for playing in Europe. And at the third meeting of the board, it was agreed. Yes, United would defy the league and with the FA's support, enter the European Cup there. Um, uh, their entry was accepted. And so Manchester United, this season, this was to be the season that Manchester United already established as supreme in England. The, fir for the first time ever, the notion of a treble arose. Because if United could succeed in Europe, in other words, knock Real Madrid off their perch, which they descended in the first tournament, followed by Busby very closely, uh, in which they beat Stade Reims in France uh, in the final. Uh, you know, there was the chance now to knock Real Madrid off their perch on top of the glamour of the FA Cup and the honour of the, of the Football League. So uh, things were getting very, very exciting uh, around Old Trafford as this 19 and Main Road after this, as this 1956-7 season began. Yeah, it's absolutely worth noting, um, as I've said in previous episodes, that the Charity Shield was taken seriously. Um, it was an October fixture this time round, as, as it had been in previous seasons. But it's worth noting, United win the Charity Shield, but as um, the season wore, wore on and people start talking about the trebles, that, uh, the trophies they could win, the treble is the one that is mentioned. They don't mention a quadruple. So therefore, <laughs> they, they say the, the, the 1950s press deduced that the Charity Shield was not um, worth um, the, the count of a proper trophy. But that will not be the case for David Gaskell, who I'll talk about right now. So mm. Manchester United were preparing for this um, game with Ray Wood in goal, their regular goalkeeper. And as we all know, when United get to any form of a final, they have goalkeeper issues. <laughs> Ray Wood yes. in the first uh, half. And um, I'm going to take the quote up from David Gascalier, who was, he was sharing digs at the time with Bill Whelan and Duncan Edwards. You remember that Duncan had moved yeah. in um, after, after the unfortunate episodes at Mrs. Watson's house. So I'll, I'll read David Gaskell's quotes. I got home from the ground from after my day's work and Bill and Duncan had already gone to the game. They'd gone to David Hume Golf Club before the match. I was having my tea and was still undecided whether I would go to the game. I couldn't yep. drive. It would be a case of getting two buses. The landlord was going to watch it on the television. The landlord was um, a big United fan and the landlady. I was going to watch it with him, but decided at the last minute to go to Main Road. I got there just before kickoff and managed to get in. A few minutes into the game, 
Ray Wood, our goalkeeper, got injured. Before I knew it, Bert Wally appeared on the touchline in front of me. I don't know how he knew I was there and said that I was wanted in the dressing room. So, well, um, at half-time, Gaskell comes on. Um, Edwards has been in goal for a little while, keeps a clean sheet. United um, go on to win 1-0 with David Gaskell making his first team debut at 16 years and 19 days, therefore becoming the youngest um, the youngest player in Manchester United history. Um, after the match, Duncan Edwards intervened to help show that um, David Gaskell um, got his medal. So I'm going to take up the story again from Gaskell. He says... I was given a winner's medal after the game. I was a bit embarrassed by it. And when I got back to the dressing room, I saw Ray looking all forlorn. So I gave the medal to him. Duncan came up to me and said, no, that's effing yours, son. I didn't go back to Ray. I couldn't. But a few minutes later, Duncan came back to me and gave me a medal. I don't know if it was Ray's. I don't know whose it was. I was feeling pretty pleased with myself. But I didn't really know what to do as the rest of the lads were getting dressed in their club blazers and smart attire. And I just had the old T-shirt I'd come to the game in. <laughs> I resisted their invitations to go out because I wasn't old enough to have a drink. So I went to the bus stop just outside Main Road. As I stood at the bus stop, some of the match goers were talking about how well that young goalkeeper had done. I couldn't <laughs> shame to tell them it was me. The team coach pulled out onto the road and Bill and Duncan saw me waiting for the bus. The coach stopped and they got out and pulled me on the coach. They were insistent that I should go on with them to celebrate. I said again about not being old enough, so I got dropped off back in Stretford. The landlord was chuffed as hell because he was a big United fan, but he hadn't spotted that it was me and not Ray who'd come back in goal. <laughs> I, I went up to my room to go to bed. When Duncan and Bill came back later, they called me downstairs where they made this big song and dance about it. Um, just a great story about the yes, um, a, a, an extraordinary debut, um, which Gaskell yes. doesn't really blow up a lot, but that's a real good story. United won one nil. Gaskell kept a clean sheet in the second half, and um, it may not have been an important trophy in in any recognition of the football writers or, or even United, but it's certainly important mm. to David Gaskell. Absolutely, and... uh, absolutely, it's a wonderful story, and and quite just a, a little note about about how the media have changed i mean it, now we live in an, such an age of hype that within 10 seconds this would have this story would have gone around the world you know boy pulled off terraces and yeah. and, and and wins a, a trophy with his in his first appearance uh but then it was so nobody thought to tell the crowd so much so that a, a few of them as as you just pointed out thought Went home saying, "Oh well, Ray wouldn't play." <laughs> and the, the, the strange thing we said earlier about the being a bit fast and loose with the rules. Obviously, substitutes weren't allowed in those days, as will no. come on later in the episode. Um, the big, but he played right. No, he didn't play right from the start. No, so he no. was a substitute. He was. That's why I don't think it's officially recognised. There's a big dispute about whether he should be officially recognised as the club's youngest ever player. Um, mm. I, I certainly do because it's an official competition. He, yes, he, he played. Even though maybe United, in uh, contravening the rules, should be stripped of one of their charity shields. Well, yes, exactly. If anybody, if anybody needed a wrap over the knuckles, which um, it, it would have been the club and 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 uh, and not Gaskell. And it's amazing, really, that that to have kept a clean sheet in a, what was in effect a, a cup final of sorts. Um, well, they could never take that away from him. Or they might do. If, if they watch this and decide that 
um, some flagrant oh. rule bashing was um, <laughs> yeah. well, they, they shouldn't take that away from him. I'll rephrase that. Yeah, um, United um, called on a couple of other youngsters in, in the early reaches of the season. They won the first. Uh, well, they won ten from the first twelve league games. Paddy, they're in exceptional form. Three goals, three goals, three goals. Then they decide four goals, four goals. They're running riot. A new mm. lad comes into the team, um, a centre forward, a lad called Bobby Charlton. Mm. And there starts Paddy, one of the great storied careers in British football. Uh, uh, absolutely. His first match was against, uh, who was his first match against? Uh, Wayne uh, Charlton. Charlton. Yeah. Charlton. Yeah. Charlton debut at Charlton, and he, he was injured before the game. It was just about five days before his 19th birthday when when the game was due to take place, and he was he was injured. He'd been away. You've mentioned, Wayne, in previous episodes, the effect of national service, not just on Manchester United, but on, on clubs. And Bobby Charlton was one of the young men doing national service in, in, the, in the military. Um, and that meant he often missed training, and and this was a case in point. On top of that, the monitoring of of his niggle, which I think was a foot injury, um, was minimal because he was away with his army unit instead of training and being monitored at the club. Anyway, Busby goes to him, or um, on the eve of the match, he must have returned from his unit on. On the Friday, and, and says to him on the eve of the match, "Son, I'm putting you in. Um, everything okay?" And he lied, of course, as players so often do, and said, "Yeah, I'm fine, boss. Yeah, absolutely top notch." Um, you know, thinking about that that uh, injury in his foot. Um, but he went out. He played against Charlton, and it was four-two for United, I think. Yep. And Bobby Charlton scored two against Charlton. And uh, each time uh, it went in, he must have winced. You know, he must have covered up his wince as that injured foot, you know, took a took a whack from the ball. But um, anyway, a great a great career was was born. Uh, and and I, I think we've mentioned, you know, this was a, another example of the way Joe Armstrong, the new scout, we'd been in in situ for several years now, but how he broadened the net, spread the net. Of United's um, recruitment, uh, way up to the northeast of England, from to Ashington, where Charlton was recruited from, and uh, as we'll find out later, across the Irish Sea too, uh, to get the very, very best um, players. Some players who were to prove to be among the best in the history of English football, yeah, including Charlton. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, two goals on his debut. Very interesting um, sort of subplot. To, well, not really subplot because the England team was the main event. They were playing in England and Charlton was in the team because Tommy Taylor was in the England team. Tommy Taylor, Duncan Edwards, Roger Byrne in the England team against Northern Ireland who had Jackie Blanchflower. So no problem. Jeff Bent, Wilf McGuinness and Bobby Charlton step in. United win 4-2. That record of just scoring plenty of goals every game is seamless. It's incredible. It's domestic bliss. And Paddy, if Matt Busby was feeling content, he would have felt like a piggy muck after he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Football League. He got United into the European Cup. And what a fairy tale start it was. Anderlecht, um, they go to Anderlecht, they win 2-0. They bring them back to the road and they put on an exhibition of football which could hardly have gone any better. 
Yep. And they're like managed by an Englishman, Bill Gormley. Uh, and they've been champions of Belgium for three years. So they weren't mugs. Uh, United, however, had proved that they were better than them by willing, by winning 2-0, as you say, at the Park Astrid. And then they they come back to, to Manchester, to Main Road. And I don't think anybody, even Matt Busby, expected what actually happened. Ten goals went in, including Dennis Violet uh, scoring uh, Tommy Taylor's strike partner, you could say, um, scoring a hat-trick in the space of 13 minutes. And even at the end, United had run up double figures. They were desperately trying to create another goal. The reason for that, Eddie Coleman ran over, took a throw-in because he wanted the game to go on forever because they wanted all of the forwards had scored except for outside left David Pegg. And the boys wanted, to give, wanted Peggy to join in the party. And so they were they were working as hard 10-0 up as they had done uh, before opening the scoring. So it, it, it's no wonder that Busby afterwards said he'd never seen a greater display of teamwork. Yeah. And uh, it, was a, it was obviously creative teamwork. It was beautiful. And it reduced this very respectable Anderlecht side to, um, well, to ribbons and uh, for a 12-0 aggregate. So what a way to announce yourself to Europe. Uh, absolutely stunning. And if you don't um, believe in the sort of product of development and patience and everything like that, just remember back to the earlier episode where we talked about United's introduction to the Youth Cup, where they took on Nantwich Town and they were 10-0 up at half-time. And Jimmy Murphy was absolutely giving them hell for not mm. taking. And a lot of these lads are forming the core of that. It's continue playing the game, continue winning it, and continue giving your all. And yeah, you're absolutely right, giving their all at 10 0, just as they were yeah. at 1 0. Um, United move on to Borussia Dortmund. At this time, they're declared by the press as the best team in the world. And maybe because it's from the British press, it's a little bit hopeful, a little bit boastful, all that sort of bravado as they approach in the next World Cup and everyone's hoping that the Busby Babes and the Wolves' great side are, are going to form the nucleus of this England team. Um, mm. They face um, Borussia Dortmund in Germany. They go 3-0 up. They're very good. They look very slick, but they allow the Germans to come back into it with a little bit of complacency. Um, mm. and they go to Germany, they play on an icy pitch uh, where yeah. they, it's a really professional performance actually, they draw nil-nil. You don't, you just don't think of Busby's Manchester United in terms of nil-nils on an icy pitch in, on an icy midweek night in Dortmund, but that's exactly what they did, they did exactly what was, what was required to get past this very highly rated uh, Borussia Dortmund side, but... It make if you think yes they can attack they can defend if they have to, and when they score they go on to complete go into double figures. This must be the perfect team, but no, according to the press they weren't perfect, and the criticism um, in one piece was by Frank Taylor, a journalist who was to feature very prominently in United's later history. Um, in the News Chronicle, he called them cocky. He said, you know, he more or less said they believe in their own publicity. They're getting so much praise that it's going to their head. And he said that because Everton 
had beaten United 5-2 because we've just been talking about their glory, but they were they were beaten 5-2 and 5-2 almost flattered United. And that was that prompted Frank Taylor to call them cocky. And he wasn't alone. There was other there were other media uh, outlets who you know had this little reservation about United. Yes, they're good, but they've maybe got that to, to quote Taylor, that cockiness of youth. Um, that could be dangerous for them as, as the season wears on. Um, but anyway, look, they were through. They're still top of the league, I think, Wayne. Yeah. Uh, they're still in the FA Cup. And next up in Europe, it doesn't get any easier because they have to play, I was going to say Athletic Bilbao, which, of course, is the initial, original English pronunciation of that Basque, that proud Basque football club. But under General Franco, um, all, all sporting organizations in Spain uh, for part of Franco's time had to have Spanish titles. So it was Atletico Bilbao who faced United in what was to prove yet another absolutely spellbinding European tie. Yeah, they played the first leg in, in Spain. Um, United, a bit curious about the travel arrangements there because yes. um, they had to stop over in France, didn't they? There was one point and they were concerned about the snow. Um, at one yes, point. It, yeah, they had to clear the snow off the off the wings after the game. Um, I mean, you, 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 I'm sure you'll talk about the game, the away game, but after, after the game, the, the United party arrived at the airport to find that nobody had protected the the plane overnight and there was ice and snow on it and it had to be it had to be cleared um so uh, yes it was um sorry that was that was at the away leg um but the, the first leg was at home wasn't it no, the first leg was away yes yeah, it's, it's oh i beg your pardon first leg was away united were three nil three nil down yeah yeah uh came back to Three uh, scored two goals, but still lost five three. Yeah, that was it. Sorry, I'm, I, apologies for getting my chronology wrong there. Um, but uh, yeah, covering so thousands of games, Paddy, it's, it's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know they all blend into each other, don't they? Um, but uh, yeah, so that sets it up for a for a, for a fantastic uh, fantastic second leg. Yeah, it was a tremendous. Uh, the the game itself was tremendous. The five three. I think what what had happened. Um, you know, as you said, believing their own hype, and I think that this was a, a stinging realization for the players. Really, um, mm. yeah, there could be a little bit of press criticism, but there was no hiding place on the pitch. If the if the results weren't good enough, then the players would have to pull the finger out, and it mm. did. I mean, and it. I mean, you talked about future history as we as we move on. The sixth of February is going to become poetic, but it's poetic mm. in a sense this time around because that's the date of the return leg when United take on um, Bilbao at Main Road and and Paddy. I mean, people no, no. talk about this game as one of the greatest games in United history, and, and rightly so. Well, there's anecdotal evidence of people up on on the moors near uh, Ashton Underline. Thinking there was a thunderstorm going on in 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 central Manchester because of all these roars that kept rending the sky. It was just the crowd at this match at Main Road, and you know it's perfectly set up 
5-3. Okay, away goals didn't count. But that two-goal deficit, United always felt, you would always feel United, at, I was going to say Old Trafford, Main Road, you know, you. it just, uh, it was just possible. People believed. And, and of course, the Walter Crickma, still secretary of the club, estimated um, in an interview before the match that he could have sold 400,000 tickets for that match, 400,000. Instead, the, the luckies, well, it would have been about 75,000, I would think, 70, 75,000. Um, you know, they saw that game and it, and it was yet another absolute, uh, absolute cracker. What was it? What was the score? Wait. Three nil to United. They, Three they... nil. So, I mean, here's this great Bilbao side and uh, it turns out, um, yeah, six, six, five aggregate. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. United. And, and I, I just think, you know, that game must, have, if, if, if you could say, I'd like a, a, a magic lamp and a, 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 you know, a genie with a, a magic lamp could take you to a Manchester United game in the history of the club. That'd be my, that'd be the one I'd like to have been at. I think it would have been just, just quite something. And afterwards, the uh, Bilbao were managed by a Slovakian, Ferdinand uh, Dalcic, and uh, he said, in all my years in football, I have never heard such noise. Afterwards, of course, there was the usual uh, banquet at the Midland Hotel where Matt and, and Gene Busby were the played host with their usual geniality. And uh, it, was, uh, it, it was just it, somehow the atmosphere around European football, although it could be tense, with different attitudes to what's a foul and what isn't and so on. Uh, that was a very happy, happy occasion, apparently, um, at, uh, at the Midland Hotel and, and a great night in Manchester. Yeah, the Bilbao contingent, very sporting losers, really, and on that occasion, a lot of people, a lot of the players, there were only a couple of them who were a bit spiky in the press, but most of them were very complimentary about Edwards, about Whelan in particular, because Whelan's goal was an absolute cracker by all accounts. And um, but not all um, members of the Spanish travelling party were completely impressed with United. There were a few of them, because United had been drawn against Real Madrid. A yeah. few of the journalists were sort of saying, look, United have shown their vulnerability. You know, they it's all right. They the kids and they're playing very very good football, but against a, a team like Real Madrid, those shortcomings are going to be exposed and, and really paddy. I mean, that's probably the case. United drew against Real Madrid. Uh, sorry, they were drawn against Madrid. They went out to the Bernabeu, and mm. I mean, well, it wasn't the Bernabeu then, was it? It was, um, or, or it was in the process. It, of being renamed. it was. Yeah, but it it had been designed by Santiago Bernabeu, the former Real Madrid player, now president. So I don't know whether it had actually been named yet. That's a very good point. However, it was already the greatest stage yeah. in the world of football. Okay, dark, dank Manchester United, surrounded by the fumes of uh, of the Trafford Park uh, industrial estate, uh, was one thing. The Bernabeu, or whether it was called the Bernabeu or not, I, I don't know. We're going to have to check with our Real Madrid counterparts on that. But it was 
already this vision of Santiago had been realized. It held 135,000. And um, let me just give you a, 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 um, a flavor of what the Manchester journalists, the English, visiting English journalists thought of it from my hero, Donny Davis of the Manchester Guardian. All were left speechless, he wrote, by the thrilling and exciting architecture of the vast concrete amphitheater, whose tall twin towers and hanging terraces gleam like marble in the sun. No floodlights at uh, Real Madrid either, by the way, at this stage. As a spectacle, it is more impressive than Hampden Park or Wembley, perhaps because its sides are elevated at a sharper angle, and the excitable Spaniards who occupy the topmost tier will have a bird's eye view. So that um, that gives you, it, it, it must have been a, a wonderful sight, you know, in the clear Madrid air, um, clear blue sky to to see that uh, to see that wonderful stadium. And um, the excitable Spaniards of Donny Davis's account um, were certainly satisfied because although United came into the game, uh, they had tactics which were to deal with um, Alfredo Di Stefano, who Busby already believed was the greatest player he'd ever seen, and who now was 29 at the peak of his powers, and such a player that he was allowed a free role. Whatever he wanted to do, whatever he wanted to do, he did. And so United, Busby thought that the, and Murphy thought that the, the best way to do it, so that Jackie Blanchflower, by now playing centre-half, and his fullbacks were not pulled out of shape in being tempted to run after um, Di Stefano. They sacrificed Eddie Coleman to mark him. How can you think of Eddie Snake Hips Coleman as a, a shimmying artist? Um, but he was asked to do what Nobby Styles would have been given the task. Nobby Styles would have been given in a later uh, era uh, by shadowing Di Stefano, and he did it quite well to begin with. So much so that Di Stefano launched into a challenge on, I think it was some other player, Blanchflower it might have been, that one or two reporters thought might have been a sending off at, at a less highly charged home venue. So, yeah, it was working for a bit. But, of course, with these great players, you can man-mark them and man-mark them and they'll just get away from you on one occasion. And this proved the case. Di Stefano turned it um, uh, Real Madrid's way and they ended up winning, I think it was 3-1, Wayne, was it? Yeah, on the day, yeah. Yeah, on the day. All right, set it up for uh, a, a, uh, a, a good second leg, um, a highly charged second leg. Bear in mind that with four minutes to go against Bilbao, United had pulled back a 2 goal deficit against the great Spanish side in the could they do it again against the against Real Madrid who knows um we've got to wait for the second leg but um it it certainly sparked uh, tremendous interest yeah um well let's talk about the second leg let's conclude the yeah. European journey I mean they, I mean this was a game where the inexperience showed United were so eager to replicate what they did against Bilbao Mm -hmm. um, that they were, there was an anxiety in the performance, and I think a general level of understanding that Madrid were 
were a class above. They weren't athletic Bilbao. They they weren't going to be rolled over so easily. Um, not that they Bilbao were rolled over easily, but Madrid were the reigning champions and they had a lot of class in their side. You mentioned yeah. Di Stefano. Busby had been afraid to tell his players how good Di Stefano was. At the yeah. <laughs> that's that's right. He, he formed the view that Di Stefano, as, as I just said, was, in his opinion, and, uh, and, and not only his, but uh, the best player in the world. Francisco Hento, the outside yeah. left, he thought was the fastest player he'd ever seen. And, you know, there'd been Mitten. He'd seen a few good wingers in his time. Um, but Stanley Matthews, Tom Finney, I mean, and, and Hento, he thought was the quickest he'd ever seen. Uh, but uh, he couldn't really tell his players that. Um, so, uh, yeah, he, he, he very, I think he cleverly accentuated the positive. Um, and one of the positives was that they United thought that they could um, get at the right back, whose name I think was Besseril, Besseril, something like yeah. that. Anyway, Real Madrid were ahead, were, were thinking ahead, and they took a player on loan from another club. You were allowed to do that in between legs in those days, and they they found themselves a fullback who they thought would handle United's great wingers. Um, more more cleverly and 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 they did um they they prevailed at old trafford um is there anything you would like to say about the i beg your pardon that main road as as god it's not easy this you've got to be sharp to, to narrate united's history but uh, yeah how did the second leg go when it finished 2-2 as the game was closing out i mean united were behind they leveled up and um Bobby Charlton scoring in the game actually, and mm, yeah. it was it was a game where the inexperience showed that sort of naivety, the anxiety of trying to trying to pull themselves back into the game and, and making yeah. mistakes, which were punished. Um, but it was quite funny. You know, it, it, there was a, a, it, it, Busby sort of um, uh, sort of predicted Alex Ferguson in a way by as United, as you say, pulled back two goals, and as the referee was getting ready to blow his final whistle. Busby was pointing to his watch and saying, come on, there's more time to go, you know, as if another two minutes would have given United the two goals they needed. Um, so it was that, again, it was a, it was an honourable exit. I mean, this is an interesting thing that um, uh, in a book written by Ian Hawkey, a very a friend of mine about Di Stefano, he said, he talked about... Uh, you know, Manchester United maybe being not as good as they thought, um, compared with his great Real Madrid. And he he said, um, Di Stefano said that the English players, and he must have been talking about the party at the Midland Hotel afterwards, they'd lost, but they were socialising and laughing with us. It showed that they were really good sportsmen. But if we had lost, it would almost certainly have come to blows. Go dancing, fine if you've won. But when we lost, nobody partied. Well, when you think about it, how would he know? Real Madrid had never lost a European Cup game. So there was no no shame in United in having run them so close that Matt Busby was tapping his watch at the final in the final seconds of the game. 
Yeah, the watch analogy is pretty good as well because I mean, in the first leg, United's players have been presented with cold watches. And I think oh, true, true. They were trying to. Well, maybe there's a bit of symbolism with Busby tapping the watch, but I think maybe the the decent thing of returning the favour with the banquet, which obviously Busby was um, prone to do, as we, we've said. The, the end of that game summarised by Duncan Edwards. I mean, as Busby was tapping the watch, Edwards was motivated to think that there was still a game to win, and there really wasn't. The tie was over. They weren't. They weren't going to come back. But Edwards was galvanising the players. They were. It was two-two, and they got so frustrated with one of the defenders wasting time that they actually physically lifted him over the touchline yeah. um, as the game was wearing on. And Charlton, there was a quote by Bobby Charlton who remembered being surprised by how ferocious Edwards had been in his competitive nature. And yeah. I think it's very, um, it's representative of the, the schooling of Jimmy Murphy saying that no fight was ever lost as long as the ball was on the pitch and a game to play, he still played to win and, and chase it. And, as we'll come to see, that's very much um, part of United culture today, and I think that uh, yeah, the, the, absolutely a good good point to make about about the the character of Manchester United being formed uh, during the Busby Babes era. Uh, there's just one other thing that historically we need to note at about the banquet. Uh, Bernabeu, Santiago Bernabeu, of course, was there, and and he was very friendly friendly with Matt Busby, so much so that, uh, and this just shows that what the reputation of Manchester United was, not just in England, but throughout Europe, and he offered him the manager's job, because the manager at that day, Jose Villalonga, was due to retire at the end of the season. So yeah. Bernabeu said, you know, it's yours. And uh, it was uh, Busby asked him to um, to drop in a line, <laughs> and because he what he promised him it's famous to this day. What he promised him, he said, in Madrid it'll be heaven. No doubt, thinking Busby would have clocked that beautiful blue sky at the, at the stadium for the first leg, and he promised him a heaven on earth. And as the banners at Old Trafford say to this day, Manchester, he replied. I already have my heaven in Manchester. Something along those lines. Um, yeah, and why not? Because United did, they got over those complacent moments um, to storm to the league. Um, and obviously the disappointment of Europe um, was, I mean, they'd already won the league by the time the second leg in Europe against Madrid was played. And that's how dominant they were. Um, it's interesting. Um, sorry, just another historical footnote we need to put in here. Just... Before the end of the European quest, Busby, in my opinion, invented rotation, squad rotation. Yep. Because there was a match against, was it Burnley, Wayne? Um, yeah. And he dropped nine and brought in nine, who, as we've already pointed out, such was the strength in depth, that he could drop nine and bring nine in because they won the game. With the with the so-called second string, who were who were tremendous players anyway, yeah. And so technically, or more than technically, this was a breach of football league rules, which says you must always play your strongest team in every game. Now, the football league to this day will overlook one or two, yeah. But a wholesale, but of course they had no argument because United had played just as brilliantly with the the nine yeah. new but men in. 
Um, so was, uh, that was just, uh, I, and I, I, I think that that was the first incident of the squad rotation that during the Ferguson era became, you know, text, textbook stuff. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes. So United still have, uh, you know, they're out of Europe, but and they've won the league, but the season's far from over yeah. because. Uh, the second, okay, the treble quest is is gone, but the double's still on, isn't it? Yeah, I mean the the league form as well. I mean they responded to every threat of complacency or setback. Even when they they won big, like they won in Europe, um, there wouldn't be a flat game afterwards. They they put in a good performance. They were string of great performances and goals uh, where they were scoring. No flat games, not really. I mean United won four two at Main Road. There was a great game there because see it started laying plans for Duncan Edwards, basically. They were dropping deep to stop him rampaging mm. through them. But he just said, all right, if you're going to give me the space, I'll just shoot from 30 yards, <laughs> um, which he did. And United won 4-2. Uh, um, Edwards, again, influential against Arsenal in a 6-2 win. But you're right, Paddy. I mean, the FA Cup had been taking on significance. We've talked about the early exits and the embarrassments, the losing to Bristol Rovers and the like. Mm. Um, United youngsters had something to prove. They wanted to get to the final. Most of them inspired by the 48 final, don't forget. They wanted to get to Wembley. Wembley was a showpiece occasion. A lot of them had never played there. Uh, for, for the club certainly um, so early in the run the cup run they have a game at home to Everton where the goalkeeper for the Blues is in magnificent form but late on Edwards carries the ball forward on one of those surges we've discussed so often drives home a shot from 30 yards which glides by Tom Clare's account a foot above the ground all the way mm. into the corner from 30 yards yeah. which probably sounds about right if you were to look um, at Duncan's goal against Germany as, as Paddy mm-hmm. earlier on. And United charge to the final, get to the semi. Um, the, the Midlands press want Birmingham and Villa to win their semis for an obvious reason. Mm. But they start accusing the national press and the FA of wanting a North v South final because it's the only one that will befit a queen. There's a little bit of a short man complex there. But in the end, <laughs> versus Aston Villa. And we talked about Jack Crompton's bad, bad luck. And I talked about Ray Wood um, and Busby's bad luck with goalkeepers before the 1948 final and the charity shield earlier this season. Yes. Um, but the more bad luck here, Paddy, and this time Busby's helpless. I mean, United are struck at well, very that's, Yeah, this this is uh, when the game starts. But if I can just scroll back very slightly to the preamble to the game, because I, I can you sing, Wayne? Are you any good at singing? Not very well. Oh, uh, well, it's up to you. I might try, but you, you, all of the people listening and watching will um, will not thank me for this because I'm completely tone deaf. But the fans going to Wembley, this is what they sang. If ever they're playing in your town, you must get to that football ground. Take a look and you will see. Complete it, Wayne. Football took by Matt Busby. Matt Busby, Manchester. Manchester United, a bunch of bouncing Busby babes. They deserve to be knighted. Now, that had been written. The Calypso had been popular in cricket because of the West Indy team, the West Indies team. But there was a an actor and composer called Edric Connor. And in 1955, in honor of Manchester United, he wrote that Manchester United Calypso. And so all the fans were singing that on the way to that uh, to the 1957 FA Cup final for this team 
which you see actually with a slight um, amendment, uh, must have been taken before the, well before the final, uh, for this team, for, for their game against Aston Villa. Um, Edric Connor, by the way, just a brief note before we move on from that, that Calypso. Um, Edric had written it in 1955. It was the song that went with this cup campaign. But it lost um, popularity for some reason. And um, it was sung in pubs now and again, but it was only in the late 1990s in the build-up to the treble. Um, some three decades after Connor's death, um, that the strains became so evocative of the slopes of Old Trafford, um, as is the case now. So uh, anyway, enough of that tone-deaf musical accompaniment from me. <laughs> Wayne, take up the story of the match. Uh, the Calypso, by the way, is still my favourite United chant. And um, yeah. well, I had... Um, when I was married, I got married abroad and I had severe sort of flight anxiety and I just remember singing myself the song, the tune, because it was so <laughs> rhythmic. And my wife or my partner then <laughs> thought... Well, um, so it, it's such a feel-good song, isn't it? It's so nice that... Um, and it, it's very much redolent of the of the era in which the Manchester, the Busby Babes grew up, where they were popular not just among United fans, but throughout the country. And... Uh, it sort of sums up the generosity. There's nothing sort of nasty. There's not sort of anything about hating anybody else or anything like that. It's just a sort of celebration of football taught by Matt Busby. Yeah. Um, no um, hint of any real malice here. Six minutes into the game, mm. McPaul and uh, Peter McPaul and the Aston Villa um, striker goes charging in for a loose ball, takes out Ray Wood. Five minutes into the game, five minutes into an FA Cup final, Raywood is down. He's all over the place. He can't continue. Mm. Um, and he has to come off. He has to come off. And obviously, in those days, there's no substitutes, which means United have to play on both with 10 men and mm. with a goalkeeper. So yeah. Jackie Blanchflower moves from the halfback line. I mean, as you see on the, the image, for those who are watching the video, Mark Jones has got a nasty cut above his right mm. eye. Uh, which has mm. been tied up and he's been in the wars a little bit, so he's not in the cup final team. Blanche Flower is. Blanche mm. Flower playing in the centre-half position, but he has to move into goal. Duncan Edwards moves into the centre-back position mm. and move, you're basically losing him from the half-back line. And as Paddy was talking, very early on in this series, that is the crucial difference because if you look at the way that the teams were lined in the review or the match programme, you would say that there's probably no big difference, but you were losing Edwards from the midfield. It was profoundly uh, different. It, it changed the shape of the United team and the balance of the United team. This is not to say that, that Aston Villa, and particularly McParland, now his challenge, which to this day, and we're speaking now in December 2021, to this day, Peter McParland swears that he, there was no intent, it was a fair shoulder charge, and that it was only because Ray Wood um, sort of pulled out at the last minute. That's absolute rubbish. Yeah. What happened uh, was that there was quite a big time lag between Ray Wood getting the ball secure in his hands. That didn't mean he couldn't be shoulder charged, by the way. And looking round, readjusting his position for where to th he was going to throw the ball next. And it was th at that stage that McParland's 
follow through took place. So it was a bad challenge by any, but you know, um, any Villa fans listening uh, would have the support of the referee who simply goes to check if McParland's all right. Um, um, and of the commentator, Kenneth Wollstenholme, um, who said, oh, this booing is rather silly. And, um, well, that's certainly not. Um, maybe I'm looking at it through um, uh, a third millennium eye, but I thought it was a shocking challenge. And there were many people, even at the time, I'm old enough to remember that time, um, who who thought it was. And, uh, and yet it's interesting. I think maybe Kenneth, uh, who was a lovely chap, um, Kenneth and a you know a great commentator. Um, maybe he was just in lenient mood because later, uh, not too not too much later in the game, Bill Fuchs made his feelings clear by whacking McParland, and Kenneth Kenneth Wilson's commentary was, "Well, it's been a real chapter of accidents today." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, listen, um, Wood. Um, is because there's no substitutes, Wood, the show must go on. So Wood went off to have water splashed on his face. He's got a, what was the injury again? Is a fractured, not a cheekbone. Cheekbone, yeah. A fractured cheekbone. The Man City, Bert Troutman, had, had actually broken his neck the previous year um, and played on. And so Wood was 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 as brave. He, he thought, well, yeah, I'll, and, and got the smelling salts, you know, and all that. And uh, and at the at, at halftime, Manchester United, you know, worked out that uh, Wood still wasn't right. So they came out with ten men. Um, Harry, before you get to that, let me read the quote from Matt Busby, which happened. Yep which talks about Ray Wood's um, journey back into the first team in the FA Cup final. He says, Ted Dalton, the Manchester United physiotherapist, took a ball to the rear of the stadium where he tested Wood by throwing and kicking the ball to him. Obviously, the problem here being that Wood, they feared he was heavily concussed and didn't know where he was. Um, So they were testing him out. Um, So he tested Wood by throwing and kicking the ball to him. But Paul Ray saw no more than a couple out of every six balls sent to him. It was a depressing session staged on that deserted grass strip outside the packed stadium. But a young Cockney kid who arrived to take a look at the performance did relieve tension somewhat when he told Ray, look, mister, my mates and me have got a game on just around the corner. You can come and play with us if you like. (laughs) Unbelievable. Um, Oh, that's lovely. God, it was was the people's game in those days, wasn't it? And... uh, um, he, he finally came back, uh, re- rejecting politely, rejecting I'm sure politely rejecting the the boys' offer of a, of an alternative game, um, and I think he went on to the wing, which was the sort of orthodox thing there. And Busby and Murphy told the men, you know, just play to feet a bit more, um, take the pace out of the game, and and maybe we'll get through. Um, but uh, McParland was destined to be the the man of this match in more ways than one. He was all he was a tremendous player, yeah. quick, uh, a fast goal scoring winger in the mould of uh, Cliff Jones of Tottenham and so on, uh, who was to come a wee bit later. 
Um, but uh, he was a terrific player. Let me, let's make that very clear. And he 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 proved the match winner in this in this cup final, scoring twice in quick succession. Possibly a hint of offside on one, but in those days there were none of these toenail measures that we're <laughs> lumbered with now. And uh, Tommy Taylor looped in a header from a corner, but the damage was done. Um, and uh, Aston Villa won the cup. Yeah. Um... They talked about the um, disappointment, disappointing aspects of United's performance, even accounting for the the goalkeeper um, situation. I, I do think that they, they, Woods' return to the pitch probably unsettled United even more because they set yeah. up a ten man shape, and then Wood completely disjointed that by um, being a passenger on that side, and it completely lopsided United's side. Um, Edwards was seen as this was meant to be a showpiece occasion and he was cited as a disappointment on the day. But I think when you watch that performance back, I'm not saying he had a man of the match performance, certainly not, but you can admire what he did. He moves into centre-half and he still tried to play like a left-off. Um, but I think the more pertinent point for Edwards at that point was that he was surely exhausted. He played 48 games for the club, a handful for his country and probably almost as many army games. Yeah. But that's United, right. they could at least look forward you know, to that. That's true. You, and and to, to reinforce what you've just said, I just noticed actually that uh, I'd, I'd forgotten that Ray Wood was actually towards the, for the end of the game when United were trying to claw back. Um, they went back to, yeah. you know, sticking Wood in and hoping for the best and going back to the original shape. And it was during that period when Tommy Taylor looped in his too little yeah. too late consolation goal so it's a good point that it 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 almost certainly did have a, a material impact on the on the result yeah um but edwards and and others their national service was now over obviously some were still going through it was a two-year period for some of them uh, but united were looking forward to having him in particular um fresh for the campaign for the next campaign and um, and his teammates and, and looking forward to what they might be able to do because they were still very young. Edwards just turning 21 um, in the in the weeks, months to come. And it was probably, I mean, that fatigue was probably, and the age was ironically the only thing standing between them and a proclamation that they were the best British team ever. A lot of people are apprehensive to say that because of the fact they had been a little bit complacent because of the fact you've got players like Coleman and Violet who looked very sure of themselves. And I think the British press were like, oh, we don't really want to reward that arrogance by building them up too much. But um, I think the way that they were going, the way that they were achieving, it very much looked like you wouldn't be able to sort of deny um, that because the, the achievements were going to come. Um, let's run through the squad statistics very quickly. We talked about David Gaskell's introduction to, introduction to the first team in that charity shield. Gaskell went on to play 120 times for United, so he'll get mentioned again in this series. Um, not really an often discussed goalkeeper in United history, but certainly played his part and, you know, mm-hmm. one of the most eventful debuts of um, United history, really. Um mm-hmm. Ray Wood, at this point, um, the senior goalkeeper, um, 39 appearances in the league, 54 in all competitions. By the way, that was Gaspel's only appearance this season because he thought he was fourth in line, um, and he was, because in front of him you had Gordon Clayton, who, who was the Youth Cup winning goalkeeper of uh, three teams, basically. He's the youngster who came up on the train with Duncan Edwards. He made only two appearances for the club, 
both of them this season in draws with Midlands clubs towards the latter end of the season, um, Wolves and West Brom. It would not be the... I mean, he only makes two appearances, Gordon, for the club um, and, and both in this season. But it wouldn't be the end of his association with the club. Um, he returned as a scout in later years, always associated with the club. And even when he went into non-league football, he always seemed to use his United contacts to make sure that these non-league clubs had a heavy contingent of United players, wherever you looked, there'd always be like a new place of them there. That was usually um, at the hands of um, Gordon Clayton and a really nice man by all accounts as well. And you've got mm-hmm. Tony Hawkes with you, another of these youth team goalkeepers. And like, if Gordon Clayton's a victim of the bottleneck, then Tony Hawkes with more certainly is. Yeah. Uh, because if you have 11 players win the youth cup every year, you can imagine how hard that is for a goalkeeper to break into that kind of position mm-hmm. when, there's only one there. Um, he won three youth cups. He played for England at schoolboy and youth team level. He played at Blackpool in October, which was his only game for the club. Um, Oaksworth, funnily enough, right, he was doing national service as well. A couple of weeks after his debut, he was feeling so um, positive about his chances that he was called. He was obviously called into the reserve team to play again. And he told his, his army captain, he said, no, I want to stay with United and play with the reserves and his captain said, oh, well, if you do that, I'm going to redeploy you to Libya. <laughs> so Mosby mm. actually had to intervene and say, no, you can play for your army team. And he said, remarkable. He got threatened with international redeployment. It's unbelievable. Um, but that was the story of the goalkeepers this season. The fullback, uh-huh. Bill Folks, the first choice at right back, 54 appearances, 39 in the league. Roger Byrne, the first choice at left back, obviously, 51 appearances in all competitions, one goal, 36 appearances without a goal in the league. Their backups at um, fullback were Jeff Bent. He um, played six appearances in the league in and all competitions. Ian Greaves made three appearances as well, and they were all in the league. Jackie Blanchflower had a bit of an injury-plagued season but came in to sort of stand when United needed him as well um, when Mark Jones picked up some injuries. He made 16 appearances, no competitions, 11 in the league. Eddie Coleman, now a dominant first-team player, 51 appearances, one goal, 36 appearances were in the league in a single goal. Ronnie Cope, um, as we've said in previous episodes, an able deputy halfback, he makes just two appearances in the league this season. Edwards, yet again, the star man with um, six goals in 48 in every in every competition, 34 and five in the league. Freddie Goodwin, another of those off-back deputies, made six appearances in the league. Wolf McGuinness with 13 appearances in the league and 15 in all competitions. And Mark Jones now, um, normally the the standing or the, the standout centre off, I should say, 29 appearances. Like I said, a bit of an injury plague season for him. 49, uh, 14 all competitions, 29 in the league. So the forward line, Johnny Berry, master provider from the right-hand side, always the dominant first choice. 14 goals in 54 appearances, 8 in 14 in the league. We talked about Bobby Charlton earlier, and we talked about his introduction earlier into the side. Um, possibly the most remarkable and poetic story in English football history begins with 12 goals in 17 appearances, 10 in 14 in the league and John Doherty three appearances David Pegg 52 appearances and seven goals in all competitions six in 37 in the league Albert Scanlon such an able deputy to Pegg two goals in just five appearances and that's a top class player like Scanlon 
um, just not able to get any game time because Peggy's so relentlessly consistent. Um, the other forward that makes an appearance this season is Alex Dawson. Found in Aberdeen, as you can see from the frame of him there in the picture, he's a burly forward in the mould of Tommy Taylor. In the mm. last few league games of the season, Dawson gives he's given his first taste of senior action, scored in all three against Burnley, Cardiff and West Brom. This is a guy prolific at youth team level. He scored a hat-trick in March 1956, 11-1 win over Bexley Heath. And then in October of that year, he scored all five goals in the first round tie against Burnley. In the following round, United faced Huddersfield Town. Dennis Law played for the Terriers and scored, but Dawson even upstaged him, scoring twice in a 4-2 win. He scored 21 goals in 10 games in that year's FA Youth Cup run, which United won. It was no surprise that he gets rewarded with this run of games at the end of the season. And, and we'll talk about him in future episodes, but Dawson... This is the amount of talent that United had in in the, in the reserves, I should say. Um, yeah. Just to finish off the forward line, Colin Webster, three goals in six games, five of those games in the league. Um, Billy Whelan, now a prominent player in the first team. I'll just get the tactics up so you can have a look at how the team was shaping up as well. Whelan and Violet now, basically the inside forwards, a bit Charlton obviously coming into that line as well. Whelan, yeah. 20, 26 in 39 in all competitions, 33, 33 in 54 in all competitions. Mm. And he's not even the top scorer. Neither is Dennis Violet, 26 in 39 or mm. 16 in 27 in, in the league. It's Tommy Taylor who was the top scorer, of course. Mm. 34 goals in 45 games or 22 in 32. Um, mm. Just... Just remarkable goals all over the pitch, wherever you look. You look at that team there, it's pretty much the Busby Babes now. Um, well, you, 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 look at, you look at that team and, and your jaw drops as you realise that Charlton's not in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the greatest players that England's ever produced. Uh, and, and, of course, he will play his full part um, now that we've reached 1957 and... Uh, and there's how the team is is, is shaping up. Uh, on the bottom, on the the far left of the top row, I think that's Kenny Morgans, is it? Johnny Berry, I think. It's Johnny Berry. Berry, of course, the right winger, Dennis Violet, and so on. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's beginning to shape up as yeah. as the the greatest of the Busby Babe team. Billy Whelan there, not sure of his place because of the emergence in every game, because of the emergence of... Um, of uh, Oh, that's the... before We ought to mention this. I, we, we forgot to mention it during the description of the European campaign. As you'll notice, all single-colour strip. Yep. It never survived the test of time. It was United's European strip, um, but it hasn't, as every fan will know, it hasn't survived to this day. However, the changes to single-colour strip made by Liverpool under Shankly and Leeds under Reavy um, were to last for forever, well, as far as we know. Um, but the United ones, somehow, the, the, the white shorts uh, yeah. remain favoured um, from then on. Yeah, um, so yeah, that team, 57 games this season, 143 uh -huh. goals. Mm. remarkable he scored over 100 of those in the league and you talked about the colors there that's obviously yeah. 
um, a change was coming in, first of all, for television, because they wanted teams to look more distinctive on television. The This all red um, kit, which it is, although it looks like black and white there, it's all red. Um, the shorts have got a silver stripe down them, mm-hmm. um, which was worn by United in both European semi-finals. It is said that that performance was um, a big influential factor in Bill Shankly's decision to make Liverpool wear all red. Um, yeah. That may or may not be the case. But we talked about uh, we talked about the colours there. United haven't really changed the colours through the series. You know they've been red, white, and black at home, blue, white, and black away, which is true, and that's still the case now. But for the first time ever. And we saw it earlier, the the all white strip, um, and it has never been like officially verified, but it was suggested that this was for the television reasons because United had qualified for the cup final. They needed a strip that was distinctive on the black and white television that was different to Aston Villa's, which was obviously going to show up uh, in a darker um, thing. So United needed a different stra- a strip. It turned out they just went with an all white one, um, and they wore it for the first time at Cardiff on April April the twenty seventh. And as we show, we saw on the, the image that we showed earlier, if you're watching the video version, um, you could see the press footage that they they had um, showing off the new strip, which bore the Manchester coat of arms, which unfortunately was not very lucky for them, unfortunately. Um, they were all white in the future as well. Um, key results yeah. from this season as we wrap up, um, you obviously Anderlecht and Bilbao stand out as the key results, the 10-0 and the, the 3-0 at, at Main Road. The Real Madrid one as a learning curve um, for the Busby Babes, but more than one individual result um, really deserves to be used as summary for this team. And I always looked at this new bounce um, after the new year, where in the space of seven games, even though there's one defeat in those seven games, to talk about the summary of how good these Busby Babes were. They win three-one at former champions Portsmouth, who've won the league a couple of times since we've been doing this. Yeah. 3-0 over up-and-coming Chelsea. They're about to win the league at some point, so that's two big wins there. 6-1 against recent FA Cup heroes Newcastle. 4-2 at reigning FA Cup holders Manchester City. 6-2 against former champions Arsenal. And 5-1 at Charlton. United are running riot. They're absolutely obliterating all the teams that are closest to them. There's no greater emphasis of how good and how far away United are in terms of uh, the opponents. Although Wolves, as we'll see in the next episode, are catching up. Um, And Spurs at the same time, we should mention United are free scoring. Spurs actually outscored United this season in the league. 104 to United's 103. So there's a lot of goals. Um, United, if they've got one little issue, one little... Busby's still not really convinced on the goalkeeper and he's looking elsewhere for a, a goalkeeper. But we'll come to that next time round. Mm. Elsewhere in football, Real Madrid win another European Cup. It's becoming almost as boring as the Busby Babes dominant. <laughs> but we'll we'll come to that in the um as time to come. Obviously, Aston Villa won the FA Cup as well in United, other than that, um and, really, really comfortable league champions. And Duncan Edwards, despite all we've said, only finished runner up in Footballer of the Year, because the winner for the second time in this relatively new award uh, by the, um, the sports football journalists, uh, Football Writers Association, was Tom Finney of Preston North End. Bar sentiment. Not, not like <laughs> I mean, 
an indulgent nostalgia podcast series. And if you're watching the video, please give it a like and subscribe. Join in the conversation in the comment section. If you're listening to the audio podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review on the platform you're listening on. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later.